Welcome to Interviews for Resistance. We are now into the second year of the Trump administration, and the last year has been filled with ups and downs, important victories, successful holding campaigns, and painful defeats. We've learned a lot, but there's always more to learn and more to be done. In this now weekly series, we talk with organizers, agitators, and educators, not only about how to resist, but how to build a better world. I am Sarah Jaffe, your host. My name is Janos Martin, and I am the state campaigns manager for the ACLU's Smart Justice Campaign. And before that, I worked on closing jails for Just Leadership and in St. Louis. So we're talking right now because there is a national prison strike going on. And so the first thing I wanted to ask you is a little little less than a week into that, um, what is going on and what is the status that we know of? I know it's hard to get real information out of prisons, but... Sure. Well, a couple of things uh, are clear one week into the prison strike. First, uh, there are a lot of states participating. You know, it's hard to get an exact count of which facilities have actions relating to strike going on because it's really difficult to get real-time information from prisons, particularly during a strike, because uh, strikes very often result in lockdowns, and during lockdowns it's even harder than usual to get information out. But we can say with some certainty that a number of uh, states have activists inside of prison who are participating in the strike. And the other thing that we can say with certainty is that the strike is actually being covered, and that's a huge mm-hmm. difference than even 2016 when the Free Alabama Movement uh, led a strike that did, in fact, end up you know, having support and solidarity all across the country. Uh, most of the coverage of that came out after the fact, and almost all of the mainstream publications and, and news channels uh, totally ignored it, whereas now you have Newsweek writing about it, um, Vox, and in addition to you know, the criminal justice uh, media space and progressive outlets. And when we're talking about a prison strike, what kinds of tactics are we talking about? Um, I know there's work refusal, but I know that people have have been um, doing various different tactics to express participation in the strike. Sure. So in terms of what the strike actually means, it's worth noting that the strike itself is organized uh, in a decentralized manner. Jailhouse lawyers speak are one of the main inside prison groups that are behind the strike, um, but even in, in pulling different collectives together, they made clear that different facilities will call for different tactics. Uh, it depends on so many factors, like what the response of corrections has been in the past to different tactics and, and how well they can coordinate with each other. But common examples are uh, work stoppages, not showing up to um, assigned work shifts, hunger strikes, uh, refusing mm-hmm. to leave uh, your cell, uh, and one interesting one that um, has sort of emerged in the last few days is, you know, not participating in the prison economy. So uh, not only uh, not buying from commissary and things like that, but encouraging loved ones not to make these paid phone calls that are very expensive and, and inert to the few companies that coordinate the phone mm-hmm. uh, phone messaging in prisons, um, asking folks not to send money, which comes with its own uh fiscal penalties that go to whoever coordinates the financial aspects of the commissary. So these are all different ways in which um, people can uh, show their support for the strike from the inside. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the specific questions of prison labor that are being raised by this, because some of the statements that have been put out, they're, they're talking about both specific forms of prison labor, like the firefighters in California who get paid 
almost nothing and don't qualify for firefighting jobs when they get out but are still mm-hmm. risking their lives. Um, but then there's just a broad question of prison labor and the 13th Amendment and the connections to slavery. Absolutely. This has been a really key aspect of the strike that uh, in an interview right before, that was published right before the strike started, one of the organizers uh, made clear that he wanted this message to be um, present throughout coverage of the strike, that this is, uh, a lot of this is about respecting human dignity, and one of the ways that in our society we respect human dignity is by, is through capital, is through how we pay people, and people in prison are making, you know, sometimes 12 cents, 8 cents, 20 cents an hour doing work that's perfectly real, and in some cases, very dangerous work. Uh, the firefighters is a great example of extremely dangerous, life-threatening work, but even, you know, working in laundromats or in kitchens, you know, this is, doesn't come without um, its, its risks to people's health, and yet people are making far less than a dollar an hour doing this work, um, which is only permitted because of the 13th Amendment's sort of exception to, to slavery, as you noted. Um, you mentioned that the difference now is that this is being covered. Um, and so it's happening, as you noted, and you're talking about your work, in the context of a broader movement where people are really not only questioning the mass incarceration situation that we've had in this country, but really questioning the logic of incarceration fundamentally. Um, so can you talk about the, the way that this has changed over the last few years and how, you know, even in the midst of Trump, we're seeing this growing movement? I think over the last few years, we've seen that people across this country are willing to entertain new ideas, both good and bad. I think this is part of what led to Trump's rise in some respect. Um, but, I, but writ large across the United States, people understand that the current system is broken, the current political system, current economic system. And the more people find out about it, the, the criminal justice system. And I think it's no mystery to communities that have been most harmed by policing and mass incarceration for decades that jail and prison doesn't work and our whole, you know, the whole theory in America of uh, prison being a place where somehow you can be rehabilitated despite the total lack of resources is a fiction. But for the public, um, it's only been the last few years that this has become really apparent and it's been a combination of people who are currently formerly incarcerated telling their stories and those stories getting out there. Uh, documentaries, books, TV shows, um, all of a sudden challenging our basic assumptions about what goes on in America's jails and prisons. And so I think that at this particular moment in American history, people are really open to changing their ideas in a significant way. Like I said, not only around this issue, but but also on criminal justice. And so the question is, like, why we even have jails, right? I mean, where almost everybody who's in jail is there pre-trial and hasn't been convicted of a crime. I mean, for anybody who's worked in this space, that's always been a fundamental contradiction. Like, how can you be holding somebody without having proven guilty? Isn't that the, uh, totally reversed from the system that we claim to have in the United States? But uh, it's only caught up with the general public more recently that, you know, maybe jail doesn't have a purpose in our society. And that's why there are jail closure campaigns now with momentum all around the country. I mean, people have pushed for this for a very long time, but right now you see that there there's actually significant political momentum behind these movements. Yeah. Yeah, so I want to return to that in a second, but I did also want to note, since we mentioned Trump, that um, we're also hearing reports that people in immigrant detention are also joining the strike. Yeah, and I, I have no um, particular you know, inside information on that except what I've read, but uh, it's yeah. been a, a goal um, 
when the organizers announced this prison strike that they wanted to demonstrate solidarity with people being held in immigration uh, detention facilities. And so I think it's really great that people have answered that call. Um, so let's talk then about, um, well, I want to talk specifically about the, the jail closure campaign that you were a part of in New York for a while, the Close Rikers fight. Sure. What did what, you want to know? I mean, so many things. Um, but, yeah, I guess talk about where that got started, your involvement in it, and where it has ended up now. I mean, Rikers is not closed, but people have, you know, announced that they're trying to close it. Yeah, I would go even further than that. I would say that the political consensus is that Rikers will be closed and it needs to be closed. And the debate now is over how fast and how precisely it will happen. That's really a tremendous amount of uh, progress from where we were even a couple of years ago. Uh, so the idea of um, a campaign to close Rikers, because again, you know, whenever you talk about these criminal justice issues, people have uh, who have been most impacted by these policies have, have wanted to change for a very long time. So... When Glenn Martin, who himself was formerly incarcerated and uh, founded Just Leadership, you know, it was his goal to close Rikers. And he wasn't the first person to say that, but he was definitely the first person to put together a robust campaign to do it. And I was privileged enough to serve um, basically as the campaign manager for that as in my capacity as director of policy and campaigns at Just Leadership USA for two years. And, um, you know, during that campaign, we, we organized indirectly impacted communities. We built a large coalition we put political pressure on Mayor de Blasio, given that Rikers Island is a New York City jail and it's the mayor's purview. So we put a lot of pressure on Mayor de Blasio, built support um, among other political figures um, to to keep the pressure on him to close it. And finally, you know, after 13 months of our campaign, he agreed that Rikers Island should close as a matter of city policy, and that was spring of last year. However, you know, we, we only considered that a partial victory because we right. did not feel that his commitment was sincere. And at the time, he said that he would do it, but it would take 10 years, and he didn't give a plan for how he planned to do it, even though um, we had all put a lot of effort into designing a really effective way to decarcerate New York City um, as part of closing Rikers. And so over the course of 2017, um, I do feel like progress was made um, under the leadership of the last speaker, Melissa Mark Viverito, and Comptroller Scott Stringer, and former Chief Judge Littman, as well as all the community groups that kept pressure on the mayor to keep moving forward with his plan. And um, to the credit of folks um, in his administration, there have been, there's been some forward movement, but overall it's been way too slow. He's not shown the urgency that he needs to. This is a human rights crisis happening with his watch. And so um, the Close Rikers campaign, um, which I'm no longer formally uh, affiliated with, is still very active and still um, working to put the spotlight on this mayor and hold him accountable to the promise that he made. Yeah. And now that the campaign that you're working on is involved in all sorts of fights around the country, um, so tell us a little bit about that and what's going on there. Sure. So the Campaign for Smart Justice is the ACLU's uh, national criminal justice program where um, the Campaign for Smart Justice, just as Just Leadership USA did, is calling for a 50% decarceration rate across the country. So 50% reduction in the number of Americans in jail and prison. And, uh, and and fighting for those reforms while reducing racial disparities in the system. 
So it's it's a bold plan, um, but right now we really is a time for bold campaign data. As you noted, this is um, it's really a series of campaigns all around the country. I mean, we call it one campaign, but as you know, the criminal justice system is really state and county driven, and a lot of this um, it's really a series of individual campaigns being undertaken by ACLU state affiliates from places like Arizona to Oklahoma to New Hampshire and Michigan. Uh, it's really uh, not quite a 50-state effort yet, but it's definitely getting there, both blue states, red states, um, urban areas, rural areas. And so uh, the goal is essentially to focus on issues like bail, sentencing reform, parole. These are all some of the main drivers of mass incarceration almost universally around the country. Yeah, and we've seen, too, this, this focus now on elections around um, prosecutors, district attorneys, sheriff's races. I'm thinking of the recent one in uh, Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. um, these lower-level races that didn't used to get very much attention that are now becoming the focus of really serious campaign work by groups like the ACLU. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you left out one really exciting one that ACLU was happy to support the Wesley Bell race in um, St. Louis, Missouri, where um, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, the, Bob McCullough, who had, um, was really one of the, the villains in, in the Ferguson uprising, uh, has been removed from office after 28 years. And you're right, these, these are offices that are not normally um, focused on by activists and by the progressive movement. But, you know, in fact, prosecutors all around the country got a real free pass um, for many years by being seen as these sort of nonpartisan, apolitical creatures, regardless of party. And that really is inaccurate. I mean, prosecutors do more to drive our jail and prison populations than any other actor in the system. And they were largely left unchecked by our political processes until the last few years. And so there have been a series of dramatic wins in, in prosecutor accountability races around the country, from Chicago to Philadelphia um, to Houston. And this is increasingly something that is um, the focus of a number of organizations, not just the ACLU, but Color of Change is very involved in this work. And, um, and of course, local groups, right? Like, so in St. Louis, it was St. Louis Action Council, which is a local black-led organization that did a lot of the legwork to make um, Wesley Bell's victory possible with support from national groups like ACLU and Color of Change. So I think it's really exciting because um, you can legislate policies, but ultimately who has to enforce them? Very often it's prosecutors. And if you have prosecutors who act without, um, you know, without being checked on by the community uh, or by the political establishment, then they're going to keep sending people to jail and prison without proper consideration. Now we have people who we've removed some of the worst actors, and we're hoping that, you know, given that there are thousands of prosecutors around the country, um, a lot of the other ones start paying attention to what people actually want out of their criminal justice system. Yeah, yeah. I think um, one of the challenges on on that front is, you know, when you're trying to elect better people to these roles, but these are still fundamentally jobs that are about arresting people and putting them in jail and prison, um, you have a complicated set of of questions to answer and complicated questions about holding people accountable once you have gotten them elected. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and I think the first generation of you know, reform prosecutors, and I put reform sort of in air quotes, right, for the exact reason you said, right, there there are a handful of people who run for these elected prosecutor positions who, who genuinely want to transform the system. But uh, quite often, you know, you're talking about people who are better on some of these issues or many of these issues than the incumbent, but still ultimately career prosecutors who view 
the criminal justice system through that lens. And so um, prosecutor accountability work can't simply be about um, electing one person who's slightly better than another. It has to be about keeping pressure on that person um, even after they win. And I think a few years into this, um, into this piece of the movement, um, we're doing a better job than we used to about defining what success and reform looks like once a person that we support actually wins, whereas uh, that was something that was lacking previously. And so to bring this back around to the prison strike and the, the demands that are have been put forward, um, where are we seeing progress right now? Have there been any has there been any movement on any of the demands and um what can people I guess watching and trying to be supportive do? When I spoke with uh, some of the organizers of this strike um a few months before it started, uh and asked them, you know, of these ten demands, um which one, do you, which one or which ones do you think are the most important to stress? Uh, I was actually somewhat surprised that they were adamant that demand number 10, which is um, universal suffrage, is the most important demand for people on the outside to highlight in supporting the strike. And the reason for that is, uh, and by the way, that, that means the right to vote for all people who are currently incarcerated uh, or yeah. formerly incarcerated on parole, uh, which is yeah. something that is currently only true in Vermont and Maine. Um, yeah. And uh, and the reason for this is that all other rights uh, emanate from the right to vote. I mean, this is basically going back to the core of what Martin Luther King and Lyndon Johnson were talking about in the mid-1960s. And um, what's, it's been great to see that particular demand highlighted in certain outlets and certain conversations because, um, you know, when, when I was uh, looking at trying to get certain voting, voting rights legislation passed in New York, I mean, the, the best we could do in terms of a couple of years ago was coalition appetite for the right to vote while you're on parole. So, um, whereas now I think many more people are open to the idea of universal suffrage and that will be, I, I just hope that becomes a standard position of um, people who claim to be progressive politicians is acknowledging yeah. that the most basic right, the right to vote, is something that should be given to everyone and never taken away. Yeah, and I actually I was going to bring this up before and forgot about it, so I'm glad that that was the, the one to focus on because we've seen a couple of very important elections in the last year be swung because they were states that had just re-enfranchised um, formerly incarcerated people. Absolutely. I mean, the, the organizing done in prisons and, and with people who were formerly incarcerated in Alabama was, you know, if the Democrats win back the Senate, they might be able to point to that as, as one of the dramatic reasons why. Uh, certainly in Virginia, where Terry McAuliffe was able to, through his executive order, uh, re-enfranchise a number of people. That was really important for the Virginia vote. And uh, definitely uh, people will be, of all political stripes, will be watching very closely what's going on in Florida. Uh, there's yeah. a ballot initiative that would uh, restore the right to vote for, for people on parole, where I, I believe 1.6 million people are disenfranchised in Florida currently as a result of their existing voting restrictions. And so um, one can imagine that should that change following this November's uh, ballot initiative, that would have um, really important consequences in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, every time people say Florida and uh, disenfranchisement, I still get flashbacks from 2000. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. We're all traumatized by that one. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so... What so we mentioned supporting these demands, but what can people who are on the outside do to continue to support and uplift the the actions of the prison strike and these other campaigns? 
Sure. So, so in terms, people have been asking me what they can tangibly do. You know, the organizers that made clear, you know, in the lead up to the strike that they weren't um, expecting people on the outside to be able to do a whole lot to actually support the strike as it's happening because it is something that's so facility specific and driven by organizers on the inside. But they they made a few exceptions. And one is to the extent that there are protests being held outside of facilities, they said that it not only gives them energy and, and um, hope when they see people protesting in solidarity outside of their own facilities, but it also um, generally causes corrections to think twice before retaliating, um, which is a major mm -hmm. concern we had as an organization in the, in the lead up to the strike, is that the organizers of the strike are going to be retaliated against either during or after the strike is over. So if people can participate in local actions, that makes a big difference. Um, there is a, um, a Twitter account, IWW underscore IWOC, um, which has been posting updates from the strike and occasional calls to action, usually around this issue, right, saying something like, right. call such and such facility to make it clear to them not to retaliate against um, people participating mm -hmm. in the prison strike. And then I'll just continue amplifying these messages. You know, I think it's um, the idea that there is a prison strike and the demands and what the demands of the prison strike are, are I think still not well understood to the broader public. And so the more people who are aware of these issues can do to amplify the 10 demands and the fact that the strike's happening, then that's helpful too. You know, on a final note, uh, when people read through the 10 demands, they may be surprised to see how many of them they already knew about and agreed with. You know, this is, um, even though this is a radical uh, act to uh, to strike in, in a prison setting, um, and that's why we have to show such solidarity to these brave men and women, at the end of the day, what they're asking for is very much in line with what um, people have been demanding for a very long time outside of prison walls as well, and anti-racist policing, um, investing in rehabilitation in the system rather than punishment, um, reducing the length of sentences, and, and ultimately this right to vote, this right to participate in democracy for all people. So um, I encourage people to familiarize themselves with these demands and act on them, not just during this strike period, but moving forward. Yeah. And, well, two questions then. How can people find those demands and more information online about the strike? And then how can people keep up with you and your work? Sure. Well, uh, if people want to follow uh, my work, they can follow me on Twitter at Janos Martin, which is spelled J-A-N-O-S-M-A-R-T-O-N. And uh, to follow the prison strike and learn more about it and to share the demands, people can go to um, uh, incarceratedworkers.org slash campaign slash prison strike 2018. Um, if you Google that, you'll find it too. Um, if you Google August 21 prison strike, it should be the first one that comes up. Interviews for Resistance is a project of Sarah Jaffe with assistance from Laura Fayabois and support from the Nation Institute. You can find more information at necessarytrouble.org. Thanks for listening.